Coffee, Cows, and Crops is produced by the Peace Country Beef and Forage Association and hosted by Extension Coordinator Johanna Murray. On this podcast, we discuss management practices and research results with scientists, ranchers, researchers, and farmers. We strive to share innovative information and farming practices supported by sound science and practical wisdom. So grab a cup of coffee and let's get learning. Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in to Coffee, Cows and Crops. Today I'm chatting with Dr. Obi Daruna from Lakeland College about a couple of research projects that he's been uh, working on at the college. But before we get into all the fun stuff, Obi, would you like to introduce yourself and just talk a little bit about how you got started with livestock research? Thanks so much uh, for having me, Joanna. Uh, my name is Obi Oduruna. You can call me Obi, and I have been in livestock research, I would say, for the past uh, 18 to 20 years. Uh, I grew up on a poultry farm, and I uh, had my bachelor's at uh, Federal University of Technology over in Nigeria. And my capstone project actually looked at pre-winning leader traits in rabbits. I had my master's in quantitative genetics at the University of Manitoba and continued to do my PhD in genomics at the University of Alberta. I worked at Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Brandon as a research biologist and then joined Saskatchewan Agriculture as a livestock specialist stationed first at Weyburn and then moved on to Prince Albert. And now I'm at Lakeland College as a livestock research scientist and also I'm an adjunct professor at the University of Saskatchewan. So that's that's a little about me. Fantastic. So we're getting into the season for extended grazing and winter feeding and all of that sort of stuff. And um, Lakeland just wrapped up a project on swath grazing. So can you give me a bit of an overview of what you were looking for with that study? So this was the first year of a SWAT grazing project. It's a three-year project. And uh, we were really keen at strategies that will, you know, help improve the bottom line of producers. And SWAT grazing was really a strategy that we found would be very important to um, increasing profitability of producers. And more importantly, uh, during the winter, when uh, crops are not usually available or other sources of feed to producers. So it was important to look at the common strategy of uh, winter swat grazing, traditionally using um, cereal monoculture. And this new strategy whereby you would have had uh, many producers are now looking at polycrops. Some call them cocktails. Some call them cover crops. Um, you could also call them forage blends. So the, the question there was, how do they really compare in terms of animal performance? And how much gain do animals, uh, you know, especially weaned calves you know, uh, during the fall, how much can they gain uh, on these polycrops or forage blends compared to uh, traditional cereal monocultures for swath grazing. Right. That makes sense. So there's a lot of variety when you start talking like cocktail crops or polycultures. You can do a lot of different stuff with that yeah. space. So um, how did you select the, the cocktail that you used in this study? What was in it and, and that sort of stuff? 
Yeah, so we, we looked around and we we've, we've found a blend that was commercially available. So producers are already using this. And we thought it would be, you know, the best point to start because if it's available and producers are using it and the only missing part of the equation might be, um, you know, how much performance, how much gain uh, animals are actually getting from them compared to traditional uh, uh, or conventional monoculture, cereal monoculture. So we, that was, we, we, we went with that uh, blend and knowing that it would add some value to producers that are using it. It will mm-hmm. also help you know, uh, improve the blend if needed, especially if the manufacturers or if, if the marketers really thought, okay, maybe they should push it up a bit higher in terms of make it more, um, sort of improve it in a way that it will increase uh, body gains, especially average daily gains that uh, will be very attractive to producers, especially during the winter. Right. So um, what sort of things are you measuring on on the cattle for performance during this trial? Uh, You mentioned kind of daily gain, but are there other performance indicators you're using? Yeah, so we we measured quite a number of, of parameters. First of all, we we weigh them every two weeks, and with the with that information, we measure the average daily gain. The other part is that we also kept uh, mm-hmm. a close eye on them to ensure that they were not, you know, the health aspect of it was important as well to see if animals were being bloated or uh, if there were some unusual observations we would see. Right. Uh, on either system. The other part is that we installed boluses, rumen boluses in two representative steers in each paddock. So we had six paddocks and, and each paddock had about seven calves, um, you know, who were grazing an area of about five acres. So we installed them, it's a pH and rumen ballast because we wanted to understand the rumen dynamics between the two systems to see uh, which ones might have, you know, some more, more challenges, especially during the winter. Right, that makes sense. And I don't remember if you mentioned this or not, but the, uh, the thing you're comparing to was, was it oats that were swapped for grazing? So we had two systems. Um, one was the conventional, you know, cereal monoculture, and we went with oats. Some producers would go with barley, but in our area, uh, oats seem more popular. And the concern with some barley varieties having horns that might cause abscesses, you know, led us to go with oats that wouldn't really have much uh, challenges. Mm-hmm. And then the other part, the forage blend that we went with had um, oats in it, it had turnips, it had forage peas, it had a uh, rapeseed in, in, in there, so. Mm-hmm. That's interesting, makes sense. <laughs> yeah, and we assigned the steers, we used a, uh, just weaned steers, about eight or nine months old, and they were assigned to any of the paddocks. There were six paddocks that 
you know, received either the oats or the forage plant. And we then, each paddock was five acres in area. And then we grazed from November, uh, first of November to, to the end of January. Wow. And did you have like a setup where you could let them into certain parts at a time, like move a wire? Was that how you set up the grazing for that? Yes. Yeah. So we use electric fencing to restrict access, the access to, to the forage. So we restricted them to about three to four day allotment um, so that, you know, for the animals and the oats, they wouldn't bloat. So it, it was important to you know, restrict the access to, to new material and then help also to uh, clean up, help them clean up as much as possible. Right. That makes sense. So one thing that people really like about swath grazing is that you can do it with these high protein, high energy crops, that these grains like barley and oats, but people really like that about cocktails too. <laughs> so uh, did you see some different nutrition between the two over the, over last year or were there any significant deficiencies? In deficiencies, um, you know, from the animal perspective, we didn't see any health concerns, you know, in the steers that were assigned to either system, right? But in terms of the forage quality, we collected samples at the soft dose stage of the oats, which we used to determine the staging. Uh, soft dose stage of the oats and at the hard dose stage, and we also collected at the regrowth. Of all those um, quality information, we would say that the forage plant indicated numerically better quality compared to uh, to the old monoculture. And I would say numerical because you know it's just one year, and uh, with one year, statistically they wouldn't be different. You know, even though yeah, but we were seeing, for example, the forage plant had um, crude protein about thirty one percent higher protein. TDN was about 5% more for the forage plant. Uh, calcium, calcium was about 93% more in the forage plant. Phosphorus was another one, about 53% more in the plant. Uh, potassium, about 12%, and then uh, magnesium, about 38%. But in terms of any health abnormality um, in any of the calves that we use, uh, we, we didn't notice any any issues with with any of the systems. It does make sense. We talk about um, those broadleaves being able to accumulate calcium and phosphorus and stuff in a bit of a different way than the grains do. So that makes sense. <laughs> um, so I know you only have one year data so far, but are there any recommendations based off last year's experience that you have for for anybody who's starting to swath graze or who is swath grazing and looking to make some changes or any of that sort of stuff. Yeah, you're right. It might be, it might be too early to, to make recommendations. Uh, but other than say that we didn't see any difference between the two systems, right? So if you are thinking of less risk, you know, less environmental risk, maybe you might be leaning on the forage plant system. Uh, given that we didn't see any difference between the two in terms of dry matter supply from them. Um, the other thing is that 
it, it, one area that we are also keen on, which we hope at the end of the study we'll be able to provide good support and recommendation to producers is that we want to hear from some of the producers that have been doing this for some time. You know, one of the objectives of the project is actually to survey, uh, run a survey that will, you know, capture responses from producers, those that have used it in the past, those that have heard about it and didn't bother engaging, maybe scare them away, and those that tried it once or a few times and felt like it, it didn't work. We want to know, you know, why it's why it works so well with some people that are, some people are using it for the past 10, 15 years. So we, we want to know the motivations, you know, what is it about winter sweat grazing, you know, that motivates such people to continue. And then for those that dropped it, you know, or didn't bother um, going ahead with it, what are, what are the deterrents? What, what was it you heard about, uh, you know, SWAT grazing as a whole that, that made it unfit for your, you know, for your farm or for your uh, production system. So we want to capture that. And this is a survey that we, we hope to run across the Western provinces. Um, I'm partnering with Kathy uh, uh, Larson at the University of Saskatchewan. And so we hope to capture responses from producers, beef producers in Alberta, Saskatchewan, uh, British Columbia and Manitoba, and be able to provide uh, you know good information to producers that that could bridge the gap and increase the adoption rates on this system that has such uh, great potential to improve the uh, uh, profitability of beef producers. Yeah, that makes sense. I know up here in the piece, um, depending on where you are, but for a lot of people, one issue is the elk uh, on the swaths and stuff. Like you get wildlife into the swaths and then the cows won't eat it and there's hardly anything mm. left. And <laughs> mm. Well, that's good. <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's some discussion around that up here for sure. Mm. Another thing I wanted to talk about very briefly uh, was... When we're talking about extended grazing systems, even if you're talking bale grazing or something like that, um, another issue we can often run into is mineral and vitamin deficiencies. Uh, because uh, in these extended <laughs> systems, it's hard to like look, you're not looking at those cows every day necessarily. And even if you are, like subclinical mineral deficiencies can have a huge impact on health and performance yeah. uh, and reproductive efficiency. So um, I know you were talking this spring about a project uh, Lakeland worked on with garlic, using garlic to increase mineral intake. So can you talk a little bit about, about that project? Yeah, so um, this was a, a project that we started off looking at its effect on uh, flies, you know, feeding garlic to, to repel flies and, in, 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 mm -hmm. you know, grazing cattle. Because... We know that you know when they're being disturbed by horn flies or stable flies, most of them will, will go hide in the bushes and bunching together, and it's usually associated with uh, what we can call distracted feeding. So they don't really 
they, they might lose a lot of uh, weight and not graze as well, even though you have lots of forage available. So we know that some producers feed garlic because of its perceived repellent effect, and others use that to spice the mineral intake because some of the uh, supplements might not be that palatable. So they need ways to make it more attractive and uh, encourage the animals to consume it. And, you know, infusing garlic into it has been one strategy to do that. And we, in our research, we saw between 18 and, and over 50% increase in mineral supplement in confined system. And, and this was conducted at Lakeland College. So um, another thing you mentioned when you're talking about uh, using garlic to increase these supplement intake was um, that you had some older older garlic versus new garlic <laughs> that you used. So um, did you see significant differences in the effectiveness? Oh, and what form were you using this garlic in? First of all, we, we used uh, products that were available. So we used uh, uh, dehydrated garlic powder and then we had another one that you know they call it garlic oil you know on the label it says uh, garlic oil premix but garlic doesn't quite have oil just because of the steam distillation uh, process that makes it look like you know the product is is oil from garlic but in other words uh, garlic oil per se is, is more concentrated than garlic, normal dehydrated garlic powder. So we used what was available to producers, what they were using and the levels that they were using. So we had some receiving at 2.5% and some others receiving at 5%. And then the garlic oil-based premix we fed at 0.3%, which was the recommended uh, level. In terms of the differences between the old and fresh garlic, I will tell you it was uh, by accident that we <laughs> we got into that because, you know, who checks, who checks the manufacturing date on some materials, right? So that was one thing we, we thought we were receiving, you know, fresh material. And maybe this takes us back to some of the issues with feeding garlic, whereby it's been a, a, a controversial area amongst producers in terms of whether it works or whether it doesn't work. So you have a lot of producers that will swear by it and maybe an equal number of people that have used it, equal number of producers that have used it that will tell you that it, you know, that it doesn't work. So one aspect of this project also was to try to understand why does this same product work so well with some people and doesn't work at all with others? So when we got the first batch in 2019, when we ran it, when we fed the 2.5% garlic powder and 5% garlic powder and uh, the 0.3% garlic oil-based premix, it was like, it was night and day compared to the control. So it was like an aha moment. This really works because over 50%, you know, uh, intake for, for the garlic powder 
for the animals receiving the, the garlic infused supplement. But then the next year when we used another batch, another box that was delivered to us, we didn't receive or we didn't observe the, the same outcome. They were much lower. They, were, they weren't even better than the control. So we went back to you know, troubleshoot what was going on. And then what we now saw that the manufacturing date was the same as the, the one we had used the previous year. And, and that kind of explained why some producers may not really see good outcomes, you know, what they're expecting from feeding these uh, um, supplements. So what I tell producers now is, you know, if you're buying this, please check the manufacturing date. Because if it's older than 12 months, if it's older than a year, then probably it's not going to give you the results that you expect. Interesting. That's good to know. <laughs> yeah, so I know it, it has been, there was a lot of discussion about it as flyer repellent. And you said you didn't really see any difference there for in terms of flies? Oh, for the flies, that was uh, another thing. In a confined system, in a, a feedlot system, you have the, the dung pass, you, you know, that the, the disturbed quite frequently. You, you wouldn't have such disturbances in the pasture. So corn flies don't quite develop well when the dung path has been disturbed. And then the other thing that we observe as well is that, and that we also saw from literature is that the hatch rate for horn flies is, is much lower in grain-fed manure, like manure from animals that have been uh, fed uh, grain-based um, feed. So it was, it was easy to say yeah, that the circumstances surrounding the, the confined feeding environment to understand the intake, to understand the uh, performance, average daily gain, to understand the uh, feeding behaviors associated with feeding garlic-infused supplement, you know, doesn't quite favor the uh, what we call the insectifugal aspect. Understanding the the repellents that those supplements would have on flies. So, I would say that aspect was inconclusive. Uh, from the feedlot study, but it was just the right environment for the intake study, which gave us uh, uh, the differences between the control uh, and those that received garlic, garlic powder or garlic oil infused supplement. And I should, I should mention that um, you know, in terms of measuring that, measuring it and understanding how to tell the differences, it was very easy for us to, you know, use ear tags on these animals. So we measured individual animal consumption. We measured individual animal intake, feed intake, and individual animal supplement intake. So the GrowSafe system, which we have at Lakeland College, uh, helped us to differentiate, okay, how much feed each animal within the group consumed and how much each uh, um, steer consumed of, of the uh, supplement. So, and that's also 
is, you know, comes along with the behavior associated with the feeding, how, how frequent they were. But it was really easy to use the, the system to uh, determine, you know, the differences between the garlic infused and non-garlic infused. Yeah, makes sense. We had some of those grow safe bins at Olds where I went to school. Neat to see. <laughs> They're a cool system. And just for my own curiosity, uh, what was the supplement you were feeding? So it's just normal mineral mix. Um, it's it's loose mineral. And so we we mixed we mixed it with garlic ourselves so that we know which level we're adding. It's something producers can access. They could go to any feed store to get garlic laced supplements, garlic laced minerals. So it's commercially available. And I, right now, I think over 50% of, of some of the beef supplements might actually have some, some garlic in there. So it's how uh, <laughs> popular uh, it, it has become. That's interesting. Oh, and with all this talk of minerals and supplements and stuff, going back to the, the swath grazing project, you mentioned that uh, just in the numerical side of things with mineral content of the, um, yeah, the cocktail versus the oats, did you feed different mineral for both of those or were you feeding kind of the same mineral, like same across the board? Yeah, they, they received the same uh, mineral supplement. It's loose mineral. Uh, you know, we just kept it out there um, and then they just access it. But you know, one thing that we're curious about is, you know, which group may have consumed, you know, more, more mineral. And, and that's something that we're hoping to, to look at next. But in, in, in terms of body gains, I don't know if we, if we talked about that. I'm not sure. In terms of animal performance, we saw higher gains on the forage plant, but even though it's numerically more because it's one year, it, yeah, uh, statistically it, it didn't show uh, much differences in you know, between the two. So um, for the oats, the oats were given about 1.45 pounds per day, average daily gain for the entire period, you know, between uh, November and end of January for the oats was 1.45 pounds. But on the, on the forage plant, they were about 1.72 pounds uh, per head per day. So it's still one year. So we're looking forward to what, what would happen uh, in the next two years. <laughs> yes, it's promising, but we can't make any we can't make any grand assumptions yet. <laughs> yeah, but you know the the one takeaway from that is that you can't really go wrong by using any system. It all depends on which one fits your you know, operation and mm -hmm. which one fits your farm activities. You know, so. I think it's up to producers to see which one fits better for them and they, they may decide to go with that. That makes good sense to me. It's always best to make sure that the, the management practice is going to fit with your 
system. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Is there anything we've missed or anything else you'd like to discuss? Maybe I should have also mentioned that we, we measured uh, body fat. Uh, so we, we measured ultrasound, rib fat, ultrasound, rump fat, and ultrasound uh, ribeye area, uh, and ultrasound intramuscular fat. And it, the numbers didn't quite show much difference between mm. the two systems, but the um, the steers in the forage blend system lost less fat compared to to oats. So this is a still another thing that we we would need to uh, confirm in the in future studies this year and next year. Neat. So if people want to learn more about uh, either of these projects or or keep up with the swath grazing project or or any of that sort of stuff. Um, or any of the other projects you guys are working on at Lakeland, is there a website they can go find that information on or a newsletter or any of that sort of stuff? Yeah, so it's on the Applied Research page at Lakeland College, and there you will have access to uh, the summaries of the projects we've been doing, as well as uh, some pictures as well. Uh, we also plan to include some videos as well that uh, you know, anyone interested could see what, what's happening. Right on. Uh, is there any other resources or anything like that you'd like to recommend as far as swath grazing or minerals go? Um, well, we plan to publish some of the outcomes. Uh, this project is uh, it's actually a master's student's uh, thesis, and there will be some publications coming up, and they will all be displayed on the website once they are out. Right on. I will. Uh, I'll put the link to to those pages down in the description of the podcast and people can check them out and we'll have to we'll have to do another one of these uh sometime when you got when you've got some more results okay yeah that's that's great yeah we will perfect thank you so much Obi. this was good thank you thank you peace country beef and forage association is a research and extension group based out of fairview alberta Our mission is to help producers thrive in an agricultural system that is profitable, regenerative, and attractive to future generations. To learn more about what we do and see the results of our research trials or our archive of newsletters and fact sheets, check out our website at peacecountrybeef.ca. Want to get in touch? Have a burning question or a topic suggestion? Send us a message on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Thanks for listening!